0: Hello and welcome to Screen Facts with Jason Davis. Today I am joined by my cousin, Warren Sadowski. Hello, sir. Hello, everyone. You joining me on the podcast happened uh, sort of by accident. You had suggested the movie that we're going to talk about today for a podcast. And I said, hey, why don't you do the podcast with me? So today we're going to talk about a movie that uh, is turning 40 this year. In fact, it's, uh, it's going to be turning 40 officially on June 20th. Jaws. When this movie came out, I was pretty young. Okay. I was six at the time, (laughs) but you know, you're a couple of years older than me, not a lot, but you had a different experience with Jaws. Talk about that a little bit.
1: Well, it was funny because what really got me at the time, there was a Time magazine cover that came out and it had this super shark picture and headline on it. And that really hooked me. I couldn't wait to see the movie. It was about the time of my 13th birthday, I got so into sharks that I started going to the library. Yeah, that's right. The library. It was before the age (laughs) of the internet. And I read every book I could find on sharks. I even started keeping a journal on each type of shark and collected shark teeth to go along with that. Man. Did you know that great whites are the largest predatory fish on earth? I didn't actually. They can grow to an average of 15 feet in length and specimens exceeding 20 feet and weighing up to 5,000 pounds have been recorded. They can detect a drop of blood in 25 gallons of water and can sense even tiny amounts of blood in the water up to
0: three miles away. That's amazing. So, you know, it's interesting because when you watch Jaws, you kind of go, oh, this is kind of unrealistic. But actually, it's not because I don't remember exactly how big the shark's supposed to be in the movie. But if they've had great whites for real that were 20 feet, I mean, it's probably not that far off from the movie shark. No, not at all. So what else do you remember from around the time Jaws came out?
1: We actually built in my cousin Donald and Andrea's backyard in Southern California around their swimming pool, like a set that was almost like from Jaws. And we had this little plastic boat that, you know, I mean, it was like a little fiberglass boat that we would put in the swimming pool and we would drive around making like we went on the Jaws tour.
0: Oh, that's so cool. Back then, we used our imaginations. We didn't have video games and things like that. So... Um, I know it's like we're old men over here right <laughs> that's really cool that you did that so Jaws uh, as I mentioned was released June 20th 1975 directed by Steven Spielberg this was Spielberg's first big movie he had done a couple of things prior to this Duel and Sugarland Express this was the movie that made Spielberg Spielberg the screenplay was written by Peter Benchley and Carl Gottlieb and it's based on the novel by Benchley Roy Scheider Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfuss, and Lorraine Gary are the main stars of the film. Production dates, February 1974 to April 1975. They did a couple of different blocks of filming. Initially, it was May 2nd, 1974 to September 18th, 1974. That was when they were on location in Martha's Vineyard. And then they did some additional photography, October to December of 1974. This movie was not an easy movie to get made by any stretch.
1: You know, one of the things that I found really interesting, you know, you talk about the book that it was adapted from. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter Benchley's book was actually based on a series of shark attacks that occurred off the coast of New Jersey in 1916. Oh, okay. And it was also after an incident where a New York fisherman named Frank Mundus caught a 4,500-pound shark off the coast of Montauk in 1964.
0: Okay, so this is based on some real events, then. Yeah. The movie won Oscars for Best Sound, Best Film Editing, and for John Williams' score. It was nominated for Best Picture, but did not win. The score won a Golden Globe, and it was nominated for Best Drama, Best Screenplay, and Best Director at the Globes as well. So the budget was estimated at $8 million. It grossed almost that much in the opening weekend, and went on to gross $124.3 million during its initial run, then made almost $27 million more when it was re-released a few years later in 1979. Now, in 1975, it was considered the first blockbuster and the first big summer film, and it was the highest-grossing film of all time at that point. It was the first movie to make over $100 million. And then uh, some indie film called Star Wars came out (laughs) that kind of changed things.
1: You know me. I'm a numbers guy. You want to hear one of the things that I found out about uh, the production was that the original budget was only about $3.5 million, and because of all the problems that occurred, it went that much over budget.
0: One of the things that Spielberg is so good at in movies of this nature that he directs, he's just masterful at building tension. The way he shoots at water level and underwater with the John Williams score, the scene where the two guys are, you know, they're throwing the roast into the water uh, off the dock. (laughs) You know, trying to catch the shark. Uh (laughs) The shark takes the dock out and, and, you know, and then he turns around and he's going to go after the guy that's trying to swim back to the shore. And you're like, oh, is he going to make it? And it's really (laughs) amazing. The two kids with the cardboard fin. All these things that he does to build the tension of the movie. He wanted to have more of the shark in the movie. But because the thing didn't work half the time, he had to come up with creative ways to show the shark without actually showing the shark. That's right. You got to give him props for that because he really did a great job of like making you not really miss the shark. It's actually kind of cool that you don't see the shark as much.
1: Well, you know, arguably one of the most famous death scenes in movie history was that first attack when you see the skinny dipping bather, Chrissy Watkins. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the violence is just purely implied. You don't really see a shark or anything at that time. But, you know, just the whole thing, the silence and, and seeing her struggling and all of a sudden you see her being pulled and torn from side to side. It, what they actually did, I heard, is that they attached harnesses with cables to her legs and she was being pulled by crew members back and forth along the shoreline. And Spielberg didn't tell her when she was going to be attacked. So those reactions are really genuine. And then hearing her, it sounds like she's really
0: drowning. They went into a sound studio and they recorded, they actually poured water down her throat while she was like screaming to get that drowning effect. Mm-hmm. Pretty amazing. <laughs>
1: pretty scary. too. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure.
0: The other thing about that scene that you were just talking about—the first time that the girl is pulled under the water by the shark—that's actually Spielberg that does that, which is kind of cool. So, I didn't know that. um, yeah, he's a real hands-on guy. But uh-huh. yeah, that that was just an amazing scene, and like, and it really sets the tone for the entire movie because that's right out of the gate. You know, you see that happen. So there's a another scene in the movie that's a big shock moment put in there for screams. It's when Hooper goes underwater to check out the hole of Ben Gardner's boat. Uh Ben's head pops out of the hole, and I knew that was coming, and I still jumped.
1: (laughs) I know, exactly. That role was played by a Martha's Vineyard native and fisherman named Craig Kinsbury, who also helped Robert Shaw with his accent and allegedly told Shaw old sea stories that Shaw used in his improvised dialogue. Very cool.
0: Let's talk about the significance of the line... That's some bad hat, Harry. Yeah, there's a
1: production company that's uh, helmed by director Brian Singer, and it's called Bad Hat Harry. I remembered seeing that in the TV series House.
0: Yeah, I used to watch House, too.
1: Yeah, and and you you hear, hey, that's some bad hat, Harry. And then when you heard it again watching the movie, it was like, oh, that's where it's from. I know,
0: I I totally forgot about that, too. After watching House for many years, and then when I watched Jaws again, that line comes up in the movie. I'm like, oh, wow, okay. Right. Co-screenwriter Carl Gottlieb said that they had a chance to make Jaws do for the ocean what Psycho did for Showers, and yep. I think they succeeded pretty well. Oh, for sure.
1: Did you know that Carl was a comedy writer-actor, and at that time, he was working on the TV sitcom The Odd Couple? I didn't know that. I, I guess Steven Spielberg and The Shark were The Odd Couple. You
0: know. Yeah, I guess. One of the producers, David Brown, said that had they read the book twice, they probably wouldn't have tried to make the movie because he thought it would have been impossible to get the shark to jump up on the stern of the boat and eat a man.
1: One of the things I also heard was that Steven Spielberg wasn't the original director of Jaws. A fellow by the name of Dick Richards was fired after meeting with the producers and the studio execs because in the meeting with them, he said that his opening shot would have a camera come out of the water to show the town, then the whale would come out of the water. (laughs) (laughs) The producer said that they weren't making Moby Dick. yeah, And they're not going to work with someone who doesn't know the difference between a whale and a shark.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's uh, that's a major faux pas if you're directing Jaws and you're mistaking the main character as a whale. Oops. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yep. So along came Spielberg, who, as you said, he had just directed his first theatrical film. It happened before Zanuck and Brown, the producers, okay. and they were meeting in, in their office and he noticed a copy of the Benchley novel and he, you know, asked if he could take a look at it. And after reading it, he was immediately captivated by it. And the producers basically asked him uh, to come on board and and direct it. And before production began, Spielberg was kind of reluctant to continue with it. David Brown helped convince him to stick with the project. And he said, after Jaws, you can make all the films you want.
0: Yeah, and then after the success of Jaws, he went on a run of a a few really successful movies. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T. He directed part of the Twilight Zone movie, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, The Color Purple, and the list goes on and on. So one of the things that that makes the movie stand the test of time, I think, are the characters. They're all very well written and very well fleshed out. You know, the mayor is a typical politician that seems to care more about how much money the town could lose if they close the beach instead of worrying about the people's safety. Although in the book, it's revealed that the mayor is being blackmailed by the mafia to keep the beaches open, (laughs) which they don't talk about in the movie at all. But see, if that was in the movie, then you kind of go, okay, now we understand why he's, he's doing what he's doing. Brody has a fear of the water and his need to protect. Quint is just an amazing character. He's very colorful, and, and Shaw's performance is just so great that uh, it really makes the movie.
1: Shida was cast after eavesdropping on Spielberg at a Hollywood party. He overheard him talking to a friend about the scene where the shark leaps out of the water and onto Quint's boat. And he was instantly enthralled and he said, I got to be in this film. And Spielberg loved him because he had just finished the Academy Award winning film, The French Connection. And then he offered Scheider the leading part of Chief Martin Brody. If you remember Brody's famous, you're going to need a bigger boat line, mm-hmm. that wasn't actually in the script. It was entirely improvised by Scheider.
0: Which is amazing, because that sounds like something that would have been written, especially when he delivers the line, because the shark comes out of the water, and it's huge. So there were a couple of other people that were being considered for some of the roles in the movie. And this is always fun when you when I do research for the podcast and, and to learn some of the other actors and actresses that were considered for key parts. So Spielberg's first choice for Hooper... Was John Voigt. He also had wanted Timothy Bottoms and Jeff Bridges. It was George Lucas who suggested Richard Dreyfus after working with him on American Graffiti. Richard Dreyfus didn't want to do the movie. He said it sounded like a great movie to see, but a bitch to shoot. <laughs> And, and again, it turned out Prophetic. to be, yeah, really, what happened was he saw himself in another movie that he had done and he was really insecure with his performance. And he's like, oh, you know, I may not get another offer. I better call Spielberg back and see if the offer is still on the table for Jaws. And that's what ended up happening. And sure enough, he got the gig. So Interesting. Spielberg's first choice for Quint was Lee Marvin, who wasn't interested. And the producers suggested Robert Shaw after they had worked with him on The Stink.
1: You know, I heard that Peter Benchley actually wanted Paul Newman to play the role of Brody, Robert Redford to play the role of Hooper, Hmm. and Steve McQueen to play Quint. The producers wanted Charlton Heston, Sterling Hayden, and John Voight, respectively. Robert Duvall was another person that was offered the role of Brody, but he wanted
0: to play Quint. So there was a little bit of conflict on the set between uh, Richard Dreyfuss and Robert Shaw. Shaw, apparently, when he would drink a little too much, would get real ugly. And for some reason, he, he had it in for Dreyfuss. Dreyfuss said that Shaw was an incredibly gifted actor and writer and one of the most powerful and intense people he had ever met. He also said he was, unfortunately, super competitive for no reason. You know, they were kind of like oil and water.
1: Yeah, I I heard that they didn't get along and they argued all the time and that Mm -hmm. a lot of the tension that you see in the scenes between them is real.
0: Yeah. Hey, you know what? Whatever works. I'm sure Spielberg wasn't stopping it. He was enjoying it because it was making the movie that much better. So Quint's name comes from the Latin word for fifth. Quint is the fifth person... Killed by the shark after Chrissy Watkins, Alex Kintner, Ben Gardner, and Michael's sailing teacher. Huh, I thought I that was kind of that. interesting. Yeah. interesting. And Spielberg casts Lorraine Gary after seeing her in a Kojak TV movie.
1: The producer, uh, Zanuck, wanted his then wife, Linda Harrison, to play the role of Ellen Brody, but he didn't know that the Universal Studios head, Sid Sheinberg, had his own wife, Lorraine Gary, booked for the role.
0: Very interesting. And he, Gotta you know, the head of plus. the studio <laughs> is going to win that, that battle, yeah. right? <laughs> Uh, So Benchley had a a cameo as the news reporter on the beach. Wasn't much of a stretch, though. He had actually done some work on TV as an interviewer as well. And uh, Steven Spielberg does a cameo, not on screen, but he's the voice on Quint's Marine Radio when Mrs. Brody tries to contact her husband on the Orca. Ah,
1: is that when Quint takes the bat to it? Exactly. (laughs) Got it.
0: (laughs) So this was the first time that Martha's Vineyard was used as a location for a film shoot, too. Uh, The production was under strict orders to make sure that they didn't disturb the harmony of the land. The scene that showed the vandalism on the billboard had to be shot in one day, because the billboard had to be taken down immediately after the shot was done. So uh, the only set that was built for the movie, too, was Quint Shack. So they used existing scenery, and they really had to mine their P's and Q's, according to the uh, ordinances and stuff. Uh, The reason that Martha's Vineyard was chosen, by the way, was because it was the only place where Spielberg could go 12 miles out to sea, and still have a sandy bottom 30 feet below the surface where they could operate the mechanical shark. They had tried out on Long Island as well and some other locations and it just wasn't feasible. So the reason that was important, he didn't want the audience to be able to see land no matter which direction the cameras were pointed. He wanted them to feel like they were kind of trapped and and stranded out in the middle of the ocean with the crew. So that was kind of a a cool strategy. Interesting. So there were three
1: mechanical sharks that they made. Each one had specialized functions. One shark was open on the right side Okay. One was open on the left side and the third was fully skinned. Each of them cost about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Yikes. <laughs> you know, it's been well documented that part of the reason you don't see the shark a lot in the movie is because they malfunctioned more than they worked. After the sharks were built and they'd only been tested in freshwater and they worked perfectly. But when they first put one into salt water at Martha's Vineyard, it sank to the ocean floor. <laughs> And they have to send down a team of divers to retrieve it. The the funny part about it is Spielberg nicknamed the shark Bruce after his lawyer, Bruce Raymer.
0: Nice. So, you know, it wasn't just the sharks that caused uh, delays in the filming. There was an accident during filming that caused the orca, the boat that they were on, to begin sinking. Spielberg was uh, yelling over the bullhorn, you know, for the safety boats to come in and, and rescue the actors. And John Carter, who was part of the sound department, he was already up to his knees in water on the, sh- on the boat. And he held up his tape recorder and he said, fuck the actors, save the sound department. <laughs> so um, during the accident, though, the camera was actually underwater. And because film normally was developed in a saline type of solution. The film, still submerged in seawater, was flown to a New York film lab where technicians were able to save it. Huh. So,
1: Yeah, I heard that all these production problems had the crew calling the film flaws. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the scene with the dismembered hand that belongs to the first victim and washes up on shore. Right. Originally, it was going to be a prop, but when Spielberg thought the prop looked too fake, he buried a crew member with their <laughs> hand sticking out, <laughs> okay. put a little makeup on it, and to make it look a little bit better.
1: Boy.
0: <laughs> yeah. There's a little poem that Quint recites where he says, Here lies the body of Mary Lee. She had died at the age of 103. For 15 years she kept her virginity. Not a bad record for this vicinity. Spielberg was actually worried that they were going to either get sued or they had to get clearance, like that was some song or something. Uh-huh. And Shaw said, hey, don't worry about it. I got it from a tombstone in Ireland.
1: You know, just last month, an unusual visitor made an appearance to the Jersey Shore. Mm-hmm. An enormous great white shark. You know what her name was? Mary Lee. <laughs> Aha! <laughs> there, there's an organization called Osearch that okay. tagged this fish off Cape Cod in 2012, okay. and they've been tracking Mary Lee's movements and a hundred other sharks at its Shark Tracker app and website. Huh. This 16-foot, 3400-pound shark was actually off Avalon and Sea Isle City in Cape May County a few weeks ago and appeared to be headed toward the coastline, which has actually started causing quite a buzz in the media.
0: Oh yeah, I'm sure. John Williams said that he wanted the shark's theme to be simple and primal, just the way the shark attacked. And uh, when he first played the theme for Steven Spielberg, Spielberg kind of laughed at him. He thought he was kidding.
1: But can you imagine the film without that soundtrack? No. I mean, it, it like made the movie. And, and this was actually the second time that Williams worked with Spielberg. And they pretty much went on to compose the music for every Spielberg movie after that.
0: Mm-hmm. In fact, Spielberg gives Williams half the credit for the film's success. That score just really helps build the tension. And it's a way that they have the shark in the movie without seeing the shark. Yeah.
1: I think I read somewhere where they didn't actually have the shark appear until 81 minutes into the two-hour movie. I mean, that's when you think about that, I mean, this is a movie about a shark.
0: Yeah, but you know what? Because of Spielberg's genius, it works. You're not sitting there early on in the movie going, well, where's the shark? You're anticipating the shark's arrival. And when the shark finally does show up, it's amazing. The first time we see the shark is when Brody is chumming, right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, and that's such a powerful scene. So, I don't know, should we talk about the way the movie ends? I hate to spoil the, uh, the ending of the movie in right. case anybody... In
1: case somebody hasn't
0: seen it. Peter Benchley wasn't happy with Spielberg's ending. The, the ending in the movie is different from the book. Benchley said, you know, it was unrealistic. But Spielberg said, hey, look, I've held the audience's attention for two hours. And they're going to believe anything, no matter what, you know, whether it's unrealistic or not. So trust me. And the ending is great. It's uh, powerful it's very satisfying as a as a viewer and just classic. I'll tell you, though, Jaws really did make people not want to go in the ocean for a while.
1: It undoubtedly painted a picture of sharks as merciless killing machines, and it, it led to a rise in the number of sharks being hunted and killed around the world. Eventually, felt so responsible for that, that in 2002, he actually released a book titled Shark Trouble, which explored how sharks had been unfairly depicted by the media. And throughout the years leading up to his death in 2006, he spent a lot of his time campaigning against shark cruelty and he even became a
0: lecturer on marine conservation it's ironic huh yep you know something is a phenomenon when you start to see it around other areas of pop culture the original saturday night live cast did a couple of send-ups of jaws including the the famous you know candy Graham, oh i love that one awesome um the beginning of airplane when the plane is flying through the clouds and then it comes up. And then the other thing that I really remember as a kid, and I don't know if you if you remember this too, but there was a uh, parody record called Mr. Jaws by a guy named Dickie Goodman.
1: Yeah, you had mentioned that to me uh, when we were doing the research on it. I actually listened to it. And when you first said it, I was kind of like puzzled. And I was like, gee, I don't remember that exactly. But the minute I found it on YouTube and listened to it, it was like, oh, that Mr. Jaws. Sure. <laughs> it's hilarious. I-
0: It's great. And, you know, it's funny because I remember having the 45 of that, too, and just playing it over and over again. And I wasn't even like I didn't I hadn't even seen the movie and I still enjoyed the record. Uh huh.
1: If you haven't heard it, it's definitely worth a listen.
0: Yeah, check it out. And also for people who are a little bit younger than us, there was a more modernized version of Mr. Jaws that was done by somebody with some newer music and clips. So check it out. Mr. Jaws. Look it up on YouTube. And another cool story that I read was that several decades after the movie, Lee Fierro, who plays Mrs. Kintner, the mother of the boy who's killed by the shark, she walked into a seafood restaurant and noticed that the menu had an Alex Kintner sandwich. She commented she had played his mother many years ago, and the owner of the restaurant comes running out to meet her as none other than Jeffrey Voorhees, who played her son. So they hadn't seen each other since the original movie shoot, but that was a pretty cool way to get reunited, right?
1: He actually manages a Martha's Vineyard restaurant called the Wharf Pub. Hey, Jeffrey, don't go in the water. (laughs) So anything else that you can think of? I'm actually looking to find where it's going to be playing on IMAX. I heard that they're doing a special re-release for the anniversary at some of the IMAX theaters. And I mean, that that would be incredible seeing it on that size of a screen. Oh,
0: definitely. Hey, if you have any thoughts or screen facts of your own about Jaws that you'd like to share, or if you have any feedback about the podcast in general, please email me at screenfacts at yahoo.com. And also, please rate, comment, and subscribe on iTunes. And check out my website, jasondavisvoice.com slash podcast for info about Screen Facts merchandise. You can pick up a t-shirt there. I got mine. You got to get yours. (laughs) Thanks, Warren. I really appreciate you joining me for the podcast. And hopefully we can do this again sometime. That was fun. I really enjoy doing it with you. Thanks for listening and join me again next Wednesday for more Screen Facts with Jason Davis.